This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum podcast on open pediatrics. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. It's a great privilege to have back with us today, Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center and an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Disease at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is also the Maurice Hillman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Offit, welcome back. I think this is your third podcast with us, and your podcasts are always widely heard around the world for your expertise, but also for the clarity by which you explain a lot of these issues. As you know, it's uh, January 5th as we're recording this, and we are in the midst of the so-called triple-demic, and we're interested to hear your thoughts on RSV, influenza, and COVID as it currently is impacting children, not just here in North America, but of course around the world, but understanding that your expertise is really how it's impacting children in North America at this moment. And I wonder if I could begin with RSV. You know, the common belief is that we had this enormous surge seen across really the world and certainly here in North America. And the common thinking is that it was due to the lack of immunity in those children born in the last two and a half years or so. Is that accurate? Or was this also a more virulent strain this year? And secondly, at least here in the Northeast, my goodness, did we really surge and scramble. But it appears the prevalence of RSV is dramatically dropped off. And are you surprised by that? I'm surprised by both. I'm surprised, one, by the surge and also the rapidity with which it dropped off. So certainly in our hospital, we experience what it sounds like you've also experienced. I have never seen in my 40 years in infectious disease, our hospital overwhelmed by RSV. I mean, we had to get fellows in other divisions, attendings in other divisions to come down to the emergency department to just help out. I mean, there were times when it's more than 100 children hadn't been brought back to a room yet to be seen in the emergency department because our inpatient service was flooded with RSV. Our intensive care unit was with RSV. I don't think it's because it was a more virulent strain. I think something happened in 2020 that had never happened before, which is that when SARS-CoV-2 rolled into our country in early 2020, we didn't have anything. We didn't have monoclonal antibodies. We didn't have antivirals. We didn't have vaccines. All we had was to try and prevent human-to-human interaction. So we closed businesses. We shuttered schools. We masked. We isolated. We quarantined. We social distanced. We tested, 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 and just tried to stay away from each other. We restricted to travel. And as a consequence, we virtually eliminated respiratory viruses. I mean, normally 75 to 150 children will die of influenza every year. One child died in 2020 of influenza. Normally RSV would cause 6,000 to 10,000 elderly adults to die from RSV. And those numbers came way down during that year. So which tells you how much worse COVID would have been had we not done that. And I think one thing to explain possibly what happened with RSV this year is that we didn't create the level of population immunity you normally would create by having a circulating virus. Because remember in 2021, we still were doing a lot of those things. We were still masking and social distancing and isolating and testing, testing, testing. That's not true this year. I mean, this year we've gone back to living and playing and working as normal. And I think with that, I think that probably explains the surge of RSV that we saw, which came quickly and then came down very quickly in our hospital. Why did it come down so quickly? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I guess that the susceptible population was revealed early in that surge and then it came down because those who were infectable got infected. And then beyond that, it came down. 
Could you comment briefly on this concept of viral interference and that I know there's been studies in Northern Europe that perhaps influenza inhibits virulence and transmission of RSV. Is there anything to that? And is there any evidence that happened here? I think there is something to it. It's really the birth of the term interferon. I mean, that protein made by the immune system was designated that because if you're infected with a virus, your immune system, that's not the adaptive part of your immune system, but just through the innate part of your immune system will make proteins like that, which do interfere with viruses' ability to infect cells. So I do think there is, is such a thing as that when you're infected with one virus, that you'll be less likely to be infected at the same time with another virus because of these kinds of immunological proteins. Paul, could I ask you about the RSV vaccine? There's so much interest. And in prior podcasts, you explained the historical challenges with developing an RSV vaccine. Can you tell us about the new trial, who was involved in it, what you think of the data so far, and what does that mean in the next year, if anything, for the future? Well, if you go historically back to the 1960s, there was an effort by researchers at the National Institutes of Health to make an RSV vaccine. And what they did was they made it by taking the virus, throwing it up, purifying it, and then killing it with a chemical. They then gave it to children in a placebo-controlled trial and found that those who got the RSV vaccine, when then later exposed to RSV, actually did worse. They were more likely to be hospitalized with pneumonia than those who didn't get the vaccine who were then exposed to RSV. So we had a lot to learn about what makes for a better RSV vaccine. I think the lesson that was learned from that virus was the same lesson we actually learned to some extent later with the measles vaccine, which is when you have viruses like RSV or measles that have a fusion protein, you have to be very careful about how that fusion protein is handled. When you took RSV and then inactivated it with a chemical, you altered the fusion protein so that it was immunogenic in an odd way. The same thing happened with the measles vaccine when we had a whole killed measles virus vaccine, which then if people got it could actually, when children were then exposed to measles, cause what was called atypical pneumonia. So I think we learned that you have to be careful with the fusion protein. Interestingly, we've learned the same thing with SARS-CoV-2. And what we've learned is that if you're going to use a protein, a fusion protein, you have to lock it in the pre-fusion state. That's what we learned with SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. I think it's what we've learned with the RSV vaccine. So now you have a purified protein vaccine with RSV. And I think it's likely that this year, the FDA will consider whether or not we are going to move forward with an RSV vaccine for three groups. I think one is the elderly because 6,000 to 10,000 people over 75 years of age die of RSV every year. Two is for children, because we know that children can suffer RSV and be hospitalized and taken to the intensive care unit and occasionally die. A couple hundred children a year will die of RSV. And I think most importantly for pregnant women, like the influenza vaccine, like the pertussis vaccine, I think this will be a vaccine for pregnant women, because especially in those first six months of life, and especially for prematures who aren't going to be able to benefit from an active vaccination, then they benefit from receiving passively transferred antibodies through the placenta from their mother. And could I ask just one last question on the vaccine? It's my understanding the trial is done, the data is out, and the data has been presented in public. Is that right? So that's right. The data are out and they look very promising. Excellent. That's such great news. Well, the triple-demic, can we move on to the next virus, influenza A? You know, from my perspective up here in New England, we're still in it, but we seem to not be seeing the initial surge in virulence that we were seeing in November and early December. We're still getting patients admitted. They're sick. They're critically ill, but not the criticality of some of the influenza patients that we're seeing seems to have abated, at least for now. Could you tell us what is the prevalence of influenza in children currently? Are we peaking? Are we coming down across? the U.S. and North America? And then could we talk a little bit about the vaccine and how well it's matching up with this particular strain? 
Right. I think we're seeing exactly what you're saying. In our hospital, we saw a tremendous surge of influenza that now is clearly settling down. The good news is, here's how this works. The FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee meets every March, the first week in March, typically to pick flu strains that will be then included in the vaccine, either three strains in the vaccine that contains three strains or four strains in the quadrivalent vaccine. We do that based on what's circulating in the rest of the world, specifically winters that precede ours, like Australia or South America, who have winters that precede ours. So you see what strains are circulating. Those usually predict what comes into your country, and then that's how you pick those strains. What got hard in 2020 was there wasn't much circulating influenza. So it was a much bigger guess, same with 2021 than it was this year. So this year, I think we really nailed it. The strains that are in that vaccine match very well the strains that are in circulation. So if you get vaccinated, you have dramatically reduced your chance of having severe infection because that's the goal of these vaccines. I mean, RSV, influenza, SARS-CoV-2, all are the same. They're all short incubation period mucosal infections. So you're not going to do a very good job of preventing transmission. You're not going to do a very good job of preventing mild disease. That's the nature of a short incubation period disease. But you can prevent severe disease, which is the only reasonable and attainable goal of these vaccines. So get your flu vaccine. Agreed. That is one of the bright stars here with influenza this year. It does seem to be the experience. Could I ask you, what is the future of influenza vaccine technology? Is the mRNA delivery mechanism going to make a difference here? We have been trying to make a universal influenza vaccine for five decades. I actually trained in an influenza lab at the Wistar Institute back in the 1980s. And the person who was the head of that lab who was working on a universal flu vaccine, so you don't have to give a yearly flu vaccine, right? Why don't we just make an immune response to those conserved regions that are found on all influenza strains, and then we won't need to do what we're doing, which is have a yearly vaccine. Even just conserved regions on the hemagglutinate or the neuraminidase, why not do that? Or the matrix protein. And so what that person who was the head of that lab was a guy named Dr. Walter Gerhardt, and he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, if you want a research career that lasts for the rest of your life, study influenza. And I think that's true. It's certainly not for lack of expertise or lack of money that we don't have a universal flu vaccine. Now, we'll see. I mean, maybe the mRNA vaccines will do better than the current vaccines, but I don't want to sound pessimistic. I just think that it's unlikely. But we'll see. It would be great to have a universal flu vaccine that's directed against those conserved epitopes, but that hasn't happened. It's, HIV is similar in the sense that influenza influenza virus changes so much from one year to the next that natural infection or immunization the previous year doesn't protect. HIV is even worse than that. When you're infected with HIV, you make an adequate neutralizing immune response to that strain that initially infects you, but that strain continues to change during your single infection so that it's continuing to invade your capacity to make neutralizing antibodies. So again, you know, researchers have tried to make HIV vaccines directed against conserved regions without success. So we'll say maybe an mRNA vaccine will work for flu. We'll see. Interesting. And now could we turn to, of course, SARS-CoV-2? A couple of questions, of course, with this. Where are we with the most recent data that you've seen on the prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 across the United States and North America in children? In our experience here, as I'm sure it is, but I want to confirm with you, again, a right point here has been that it's been very low incidence of SARS-CoV-2 in children consistently for the last several months. And is that the case across the United States? And then secondly, does that have anything to do with the bivalent vaccine? And what do you think of the bivalent vaccine? 
So when this virus, SARS-CoV-2, rolled into the country in early 2020, we were a blank slate. There was 0% population immunity. And so this virus you know, swept across this country and caused hundreds of thousands of people to be hospitalized and go to the ICU and die. And now we have more than a million deaths in this country. But over the last two years, we've gone from 0% population immunity to probably 97% population immunity. About 97% of people in this country have either been naturally infected or vaccinated or both. And that has dramatically muted the effect of this virus, no doubt about it. And you first saw it when Omicron came in. So for example, the first variant that came into this country was called D614G. It didn't have a Greek letter designation, but that swept across this country. And then that was replaced by the alpha variant because it was more contagious, which was replaced by the delta variant because it was more contagious. This describes life in this country through 2021. Every time one of those new variants came in, not only did you see a dramatic increase in cases, but you saw also a dramatic increase in hospitalizations and deaths. When Omicron came in, which also was more contagious, but in addition was more immune evasive, you clearly saw an increase in cases, but you didn't see that dramatic concomitant increase in hospitalizations and deaths, because at this point, you had a lot of natural population immunity, including in children. You know, children are arguably the least vaccinated group, especially young children. Still, there's a lot of asymptomatic infection out there in children that has been protective. So it's been interesting to see the watch the way this has played out. By the way, if anybody says they know what's going to happen next with this virus, they're lying because there is no predicting this virus. I mean, look at this. You had this D614G variant, then Alpha, then Delta, then Omicron. Now, Omicron came in end of December 2021, beginning of January 2022. And it's really only been Omicron subvariants ever since, which have had names like BA2, BA3, BA4, BA5, now XBB15, which is a derivative of BA2. So it's all been Omicron subvariants. So it's like, I'm waiting for the article that says, where's Pi? Right. When do we get to the next variant? Because we just haven't gotten there yet. But again, while there's clearly an increase in cases, there has not been a dramatic increase in hospitalizations and deaths. But I would want to say this. We need better data about who really is being hospitalized with this virus or because they've been infected with this virus as compared to incidentally infected. Because when you've looked at some studies now that have tried to answer that question where they've done chart reviews and said, look, who is receiving supplemental oxygen? Who's receiving dexamethasone? Who's receiving tocilizumab? As compared to people who come in who just are coincidentally infected with COVID, you find that we are, to some extent, higher numbers of hospitalizations and deaths that are really what's going on. Are you concerned about the most recent variant of the XBB15? Not yet. Here's the good news about this virus. If there's any good news to be had with a pandemic strain, here's what I would say. If you go back to the original strain, the Wuhan 1 strain, the ancestral strain, that is the vaccine against which all vaccines are made. Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, Novavax are all made to prevent Wuhan 1. Now we're at XBB15, which is clearly more immune evasive. So if you've been vaccinated, you still are at risk of mild illness. And if you're in a certain high-risk group, severe illness. But the good news is the T-cell epitopes have remained fairly conserved. There's about 80% conservation, and T-cells matter in this virus, more so, frankly, than with influenza. So T-helper cells, which help B-cells make antibodies, cytotoxic T-cells, which kill virus-infected cells, those are an important component, especially in protecting against severe illness, which is why people who've been vaccinated vaccinated who are protected against virulness. I'll take myself as an example. I had three doses of the ancestral strain vaccine. My last dose was the end of 2021. And then in May of this past year, 2022, I had a mild two-day illness with BA2. 
likely BA2. But it was a mild two-day illness, even though I was inoculated with the Wuhan 1 strain, I was protected against this Omicron subvariant because I had excellent T helper cell and cytotoxic T cell responses. And that's going to be the question moving forward. For how long are people who've gotten, say, three doses of vaccine, for how long are they protected against severe disease, assuming that they're not in a high-risk group? I think, according to the CDC data, at the end of 2021, when they did their studies looking at the ability of this vaccine, which came out in December 2020, so for that first year, were you protected? And generally, two doses protected you. But then Omicron hit. And when Omicron hit, you know, this immunovasive strain, the CDC did a series of studies asking the question, does a third dose matter? Does a fourth dose matter? And the answer was yes. In both cases, it mattered. But it wasn't for everybody. The groups that clearly benefited from that third and fourth dose were those over 75, those who had multiple comorbidities, and those who were immune compromised. And those data were also similar to those that were generated in the United Kingdom. So those are the groups, I think, if we ever get to a yearly vaccine, that would benefit from a yearly vaccine. But I don't think that's true of everybody. So could I ask, it was my understanding that there was a strong scientific basis to say that the bivalent vaccine that's currently available in North America and is directed towards Omicron, as you well know, as well as the ancestral strain was a substantial edge. But as I hear you, and I know we're not questioning the benefit of vaccines as you've just described, but rather these are the technical considerations. As I hear you, that the T-cell response as you've just articulated, it was robust from the ancestral strain, the Wuhan strain. And so-called. And that persists, we don't know for how long, but how much of an edge did the bivalent give? Not much. And I'll explain why. So when Omicron hit, end of December 2021, beginning of January 2022. This was a virus that crossed the line. I mean, it really was immune evasive. You had now 37 mutations in the spike protein, 15 in the receptor binding domain alone, which is that part of the spike protein that's recognized by neutralizing antibodies. And now you had a virus which really evaded immunity, not only for those who've been naturally infected or vaccinated before, but also was pretty much evaded the efficacy of monoclonal antibodies. This scared people. And so what the government and the pharmaceutical industry decided to do was let's cover our bets here. Let's hedge our bets. Let's include this BA1 strain, this Omicron strain in a bivalent vaccine. So now you have a bivalent vaccine, two in one, you have both the ancestral strain mRNA and the BA1 mRNA. And so those data were then presented to our FDA vaccine advisory committee on June 28th of this past year. And they were underwhelming. They did the studies the right way. Both Pfizer and Moderna did those studies the right way. Hundreds of people who got a monovalent boost compared to hundreds of people who got a bivalent bivalent boost with BA1. And what they found with those who got the BA1 containing bivalent vaccine had a roughly 1.5 to 1.75 fold increase in neutralizing antibodies against BA1 as compared to those who had only gotten the monovalent vaccine. That is not a clinically significant difference. And more importantly, by the time we reviewed those data, BA1 was gone, which was a clue as to whether or not we really needed to do what we were doing. This was an evanescent, you know, transient strain appearance. So at the time, people said, okay, BA1 gone, but BA4, BA5 accounts for 95% of what's circulating. Let's make a BA4, BA5 bivalent vaccine. And so they did that. And then on September the 1st, the CDC recommended that bivalent vaccine as a booster dose for everybody, even though arguably booster dosing really appeared to benefit really just those three high-risk groups. But in any case, September 1st, CDC says, let's give this vaccine, this bivalent BA4, BA5 vaccine to everyone over 12 years of age. Then six weeks later, October 12th, they said, 
okay, let's give this bivalent BA4, BA5 vaccine to everyone over five years of age. Now, at that time, with both of those recommendations, there were no human data to see whether or not if you got a BA4, BA5 bivalent vaccine, you had a better immune response, neutralizing an antibody response to BA4, BA5 than if you'd only gotten the monovalent boost. But at the end of October, those data were available. Both David Ho's lab in Columbia and Dan Baruch's lab in Harvard did studies the right way. Let's look at people boosted with monovalent vaccine as compared to people boosted with BA4, BA5 bivalent vaccine. Do we have higher neutralizing antibodies in those who got the BA4, BA5 containing vaccine against BA4, BA5 than those who just got the monovalent vaccine? And the answer from both of those labs was no. It was not significantly different at all. And more importantly, I think in the Dan Baruch lab, they showed that there was no difference in T-cell response. So here you had two studies that finally answered the question, were you better off getting this vaccine? Now, the other point is that now here we are. We're in January of 2023. BA4 is gone. BA5 is virtually gone. I mean, it accounts for less than 7% of the circulating strains. I would like to think that we will not repeat this bivalent experience, which is to say, to try and catch up to these new variants, which may very quickly be gone. So I think the answer to the question, should we make an XBB 1.1.5 vaccine is no. Because first of all, you're still protected against severe disease. And secondly, this virus may be gone three or four months from now. Dr. Offit, two last questions for you. Why are neutralizing antibodies easier to follow, measure, track than memory T-cell responses? It's much easier to test neutralizing antibodies. So as distinct from looking at, say, frequencies of memory T helper cells or frequencies of memory cytotoxic T cells. But it's a really important point. I mean, why not every time we hear about a new vaccine, why don't we always have T cell data? Because it's important. Not only that, you could argue that why is it that we're just focused on the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein? This virus has four total proteins and all the other three have epitopes that are recognized by T cells, like the nuclear protein. Nuclear protein is the most abundant protein. Why don't we have a vaccine that contains both the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein mRNA and the nuclear protein mRNA? And, and actually, there's studies that have been done now in Syrian hamsters looking at that and showing that you get a broad T-cell response with that. And if T-cells are important in protection against serious illness, especially memory T-cells for longevity in protection against serious illness, why not look at those vaccines? And I think we do need to expand to that. Actually, if that study were done open to the public, I would have volunteered for that. But unfortunately, it was only done in Syrian hamsters, and I'm not a Syrian hamster. I'm not even a hamster. Hamster, so I couldn't volunteer. And one last question for you. You have an FDA advisory committee meeting coming up, I believe in a couple of weeks. Can you tell us what issues you'll be addressing at that meeting? Right, so it's on January 26th, and we've been given sort of broad strokes as to what that meeting will look like, but it's about sort of the future of dosing. And I think we'll consider bivalent vaccines or multivalent vaccines. I think we'll be considering a yearly vaccine. We'll see how this plays out, and hopefully we'll be considering which groups best benefit, but it'll be an interesting meeting. Dr. Paul Offit, once again, our thanks to you, your expertise in this area over decades, your leadership at a national and international level has been invaluable. And most of all, you have an ability to explain complex data and science in a very accessible and clear way. And so we really appreciate your being with us on Open Pediatrics podcast today. And Paul, I don't doubt that I'll be asking you probably in six months to come back for another podcast. Happy to do it. Thank you. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information. 